morning. How y'all doing today? Good, good. I love this hour. You're so awake. It's so exciting. Uh, my name is John Anderson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's great to be with you. This is always a fun treat uh, for me, so I hope it is for you too. Um, now, one of the things I do here for a job that uh, you may or may not know is that I oversee all of our global partnerships, and so we have a few different partners around the world that are doing amazing work. Uh, and one of those partners uh, is a church, a Great Commission church in a little city called, or not actually that little, a city called Laseba, which is in Honduras. It's on the northern coast there, uh, and we've been partnering with them for a couple years now. Now, something that some of you may be aware of is that Honduras is going through a pretty hard time right now. Uh, they recently had a presidential election that's being disputed, and so it's leading to all kinds of different unrest and uh, different things that are happening throughout the country. And so our partners have reached out to us, asking us that we would pray for them. Uh, and maybe this is brand new information. You're like, I didn't know we had a partner. And that's okay. That's great. Uh, now you know. Um, and so specifically, they've asked us to pray for them. Uh, one, that there would be unity in their church and through churches uh, throughout the country. And secondly, that they would have this deep, grounded trust in God. And I just love that those were the two things that they specifically asked us to pray for. Uh, so... What I want to do is just take a moment together as a way of encouraging them as our partners uh, and being faithful in that partnership just to pray together. And then I just ask you that as, as much as you think about it, uh, do a little research about what's happening in Honduras uh, and pray for our partners uh, in coming days and weeks. So would you join me right now as we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Honduras? Father God, thank you uh, for the partnerships that we have around the world and how that helps us know and see you uh, in the fuller sense of who you are. And thank you for the good work that they're doing in Honduras and Maseba. And we pray for them right now. We pray that you would give them unity within their church community as well as uh, throughout churches in the country and that they would be unified around you and your word. And pray also that you would ground them in this deep, deep abiding trust in you, in the midst of whatever's happening in their day-to-day -day lives, that they would find their roots deep in you. And pray that they would live a witness out of that trust so that people might know that there's something different about the people who are following you. And then I pray for us as a church, that we would be faithful in prayer for our partners around the world, taking a few moments out of our busy lives just to learn a little bit about their lives and then to pray for them. And just thank you for how those partnerships benefit us. In your name. Amen. Thanks so much. I know that will mean a lot to them, so appreciate that. Uh, let me transition with a question now, and here's the question. Uh, I don't know about you all, but I tend to get a little bit too busy this time of year. Is anybody else with me? Yes. Well, you can raise your hand, y'all. Anybody else get too busy? Okay, cool. The nervous chuckles. I was like, I don't know. Are you judging me? What's happening? Um. So, so for me, like my schedule uh, tends to be just kind of like the regular stuff, but then a lot of Christmas activities heaped on top of it, right? And it's lots of fun stuff, usually. Uh, office parties and things with my kids and all those kinds of things. And like way too many plates of cookies, like everywhere you go, right? Although I do want to be honest about this for just a moment. Like, I do love cookies. And if you all plan to stop by the office anytime this week, we as a staff love chocolate. So... You have a thing to take notes. I want to see that being written down <laughs> right now. Now, because this for me is an annual challenge of just getting busy, I often struggle, in fact, pretty much every year I struggle with taking time out of my schedule just to take time to reflect on the significance of this season as a Christ follower. Even though I work at a church, right, even though this is like my job, I get caught up in just kind of the busyness of life. 
And so for me personally and for our family, uh, we found great benefit in trying to build in practices around Advent. So I tried to build in daily readings and reflections. There's all kinds of different books and guides that help do that. And then also we've started building in practices as a family uh, of practicing different things that help us uh, celebrate Advent. Now, Advent's one of these interesting things within Christendom throughout the globe because it's practiced in very different ways uh, by different churches all over the world and even throughout history. And it's got deep, deep, deep roots in our, uh, our story as Christians. But two of the things that all those practices have in common is, one, Advent is about looking back. It's looking back at the coming of Jesus as a baby. And then it's also, and this is the part that we often miss this time of year, it's also looking forward with hopeful anticipation to his return. Now, hope is, is kind of a funny word in the English language because it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, and there's lots of different nuances if you really think about it. For example, uh, when I say I hope that this next year I'm going to lose 10 pounds, that stands in tension with the fact that I just asked you for cookies. So, <laughs> like, I've already set myself up for failure there. Or I hope the Packers make the playoffs. Oh, Probably not, but I hope, I hope they do. Or I hope that my wife likes the Christmas gift that I got her. I, I feel pretty good about that one out of the three. And so to help us get on the same page with this word hope, specifically about a biblical understanding of hope, because today's going to be all about hope, I want us to watch this short video put out by the Bible Project. So check this out. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sin. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better, but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea. He lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. 
God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kava for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. Awesome. Now, last we're, we're in this really kind of unique series here uh, as a church, whereas last week and this week and for the next two weeks, we are going to be spending our entire time on just one verse. And this verse is all about a coming hope, a hope for the nation of Israel and a hope for us. And the question that we're going to unpack over the next few minutes is what exactly did that hope look like? Now, in each of these weeks uh, during this series, we're going to be talking about one of four different names that Isaiah uses to describe this coming king, this anticipated king. And Mark last week talked about wonderful counselor. And this week we're going to be talking about mighty God. And so either take your Bibles or the words will also be up on the screen. We're going to look at these verses uh, again together. This is in Isaiah 9. And we'll look at verses 6 and 7. But most of our time will be spent on Isaiah 9, 6. So Isaiah 9. Six and seven. And again, you can follow up on the screen. Let me read this out loud and just follow along with me. Isaiah writes this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, as Mark mentioned last week, uh, these were words written by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years before the birth of Christ. And as you study the book of Isaiah, there's a few patterns that pr pretty quickly emerge. And one of those patterns is this pattern of Isaiah talking about a coming judgment as well as a coming hope. And the reason for this coming judgment, as one commentator uh, writes, is because the people were living, and what he says is, living lives of ritual purity and social wickedness. So ritual purity and social wickedness. I love this turn of phrase, right? So they were doing all the religious, all the right kind of 
activities, right? Praying at the right time, going to the temple at the right time, all the festivals, all the things that they were supposed to do as an outward expression of their love for God. But it hadn't transformed their hearts. It hadn't made a difference in their day-to-day lives. And the way this was made obvious was their lack of care for the most vulnerable in their midst. And this is why judgment is coming upon them. They had forgotten to care about the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And yet despite this coming judgment, or perhaps because of it, there's also a future hope that Isaiah talks about. And Isaiah uh, says that God will fulfill the promises he's made. And he roots these promises found in scriptures much earlier in the Bible. And here's just a couple of them that hope is found in. It's a hope that a king will come from the family of David and reign forever. So as you may remember, David was considered the greatest king in Israel's history. And yet there's a greater king coming. It's a hope that God will lead his people into a time of obedience. And it's a hope that all nations, all people, not just Israel, but all nations will be blessed through his promise to Abraham. And if you follow the story of Israel and you kind of continue to read throughout the Old Testament, you see that judgment did indeed come. The Assyrians come in and they wipe them out. They destroy their homes and they drive the people into a time of exile. And this becomes a dark time in uh, in Israel's history. And in that darkness, they find hope in Isaiah's promises for the future. As Israel waits for something or someone better. Now to examine a little bit more and learn about what exactly they're waiting for, let's go back one more time and look at these verses in 9-6. And as we do that, I want us to center on these words, mighty God. But also I want you to note the beginning and the end of this verse. And just kind of lock that in your mind because we'll come back to that in a second. So let me just read it one more time. Pay attention again to the beginning and the end of this verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now these two words, mighty God, in Hebrew are the words El Gibor. And another place that we find the word Gibor, which is the word for mighty, is in uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17. And it says this, For Yahweh, for the Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. So he is over all, right? The great God, mighty Gibor and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Now, For the original audience, this word mighty would have conjured up images of a mighty hunter, Genesis 10, 8, and 9, uh, or a mighty warrior, 2 Samuel 23, 8. And the Jewish people, since they were like little kids, they were steeped in these stories of a mighty God who had brought them out of Egypt and taken them to the Red Sea where he divided the waters and they got to walk through on dry land and then the sea crashed in on the Egyptian army. This was a mighty God that had taken them into the promised land and gone before them to defeat their enemies. And so this word mighty, it would have come with all these military connotations, and as we're going to see, expectations. But now within the context of Isaiah as a whole, um, theologian John Oswald describes the use of the word mighty this way, and I love this description, so listen to these words that he writes. This is what he says. This king will have God's true might about him, power so great that it can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at it until none is left to hurl. Now this title, Mighty God, this was actually, uh, would be an unexpected title for a coming king, especially within uh, the Jewish tradition, right? Because the countries around them, it was pretty normative for them to see their rulers, their kings, uh, as both uh, human and divine, or in some cases just divine. 
But this was not the case with Israel, right? They actually stood out in this sort of way because they believed that their earthly king was merely human and that there was only one true God, and that was Yahweh. And yet, here's this coming king who's somehow going to be both, who's going to be both powerful and divine. Now, I want you to think back to the beginning and the end of the verse like I asked you to. And as we look at that, there's something interesting happening here, I think. There's this interesting juxtaposition between mighty God and how the verse begins. How does it begin? You get an image of a baby, right? And then how does it end? With Prince of Peace. And those things seem to stand in contrast, some tension on us with this phrase, mighty God. How can a person be all those things? And this is what Israel is waiting to find out. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited for hundreds of years. Until mighty God one day entered human history as a little baby. Born to a mother into a poor family that was living in a nation that was being occupied by foreign rule. And First John, or John rather, 1, 14 says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, when you picture uh, baby Jesus, what are the images that come to your mind? Just think for a moment. What are the images I'm guessing it's probably a lot of things that we're like we're surrounded with this time of year, right? Like a little manger, sometimes with like a soft glow coming off of it, which I don't think is biblical. That's just weird, but, you know, whatever. That's cool. And for me, like those images, whatever it is that pops into my mind, are very different than the images that come into my mind when I think about mighty God, right? They seem to stand in contrast. And yet this is one of the things that I love about how God works time and time again throughout Scripture, as he takes our expectations and he has a way of taking them and flipping them on our, their heads. Right? He says that the last will be first. What? Blessed are the poor. What? And mighty God swaddled in his mother's arms crying. And this mighty God grew up to heal the sick and to touch the untouchable, to bring the dead back to life, to feed the hungry, and to exercise power over evil spirits. And also, to disappoint many people who were hoping that he was going to come in and defeat the Romans and reestablish Israel as a nation. As, as we look through the Gospels, we see that Jesus' mission is misunderstood over and over and over again. Right? Because throughout history, people had built up this hope that the Messiah was going to come and defeat their enemies and begin this golden age for the nation. And yet Jesus' mission was something much greater than they had in mind because he came to defeat death itself and through his death and resurrection to offer us life and hope to all people who might place their faith in him and that is good news my friends and Jesus was and is the mighty God that was anticipated that they were waiting for and he had all power but he did not use his might as they expected. He used it to sacrificially serve others. Now there's one story found in the Gospels that I think really exemplifies this. This is one of my favorite stories about Jesus. So I just want to go through this together and invite you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And as you do that, uh, let me just kind of set the scene for us here. So this is John chapter 13, and I will go start in verse 2. So here's the scene. Uh, Jesus is hanging out with some of his closest friends. We call them the disciples. And they're about to eat the Passover meal together for the last time. 
They don't know necessarily it's the last time, but he does. Um, and as was custom before that meal, and really probably every meal, uh, the people eating the meal would wash their feet. And the reason for that is it was just kind of good hygiene. Like if you go to somebody's house and you wash your hands, right? Uh, they wash their feet because they're walking around on dusty roads all day in just sandals. And so as you can imagine, like your feet would be kind of nasty at this point. Now, what was traditionally uh, the person that would do this would be the lowest servant in the household or uh, somebody that was certainly not the person in control or in, with authority or in leadership. That was not the person who would do this role. And yet, here is what takes place. Read along with me. John chapter 13, verse 2. Now, the evening meal was in progress. This is the Passover meal. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now let me just pause here for a second, because here's, I think, a danger we have. For those of you here in this room who have been around the church thing for a long time, uh, this is one of those stories that's, that's famous enough that it's easy for us to just like miss it. It's just like, yeah, heard that. I hope somebody else is listening or something like that. For others of us, if this is a new story to you, it is easy for us to miss the significance of what's happening in this scene. And so let me just share uh, an illustration with you all. And it, it's, I'll admit, it's a little bit silly, uh, but I hope that maybe it helps give a sense, an emotional sense of what is happening in this story. So just play along with me here for a second. So imagine that the Queen of England has come to visit uh, your town. All right, I've been watching The Crown a lot lately, so like it's kind of in my head right now. So for whatever reason, the Queen of England's here visiting your town. And the day she's in town, you get a call on your phone, and it's a number you don't know, but like you just take it because that, that's how you are. And it's the Queen on the other line. And you're like, no, nah, this is not real. It's, is this real? I don't know if it's real. And you, so you play along. And the queen says, hey, listen, can I come over to your house in about an hour? I'd love to join you for dinner. And you're like, ah. But, like, you can't say no to that, right? So you say, yes, I'd love that. While inside, you're freaking out. So you quickly, like, after you hang up the phone, you start to just clean like crazy. You clean up your house, and then you start to prepare the best meal you possibly can with what you have because you don't have time to run out and come back. And you're not going to order Thai for the queen. So you start to, like, prepare the best meal you can, and the hour rushes by. And all of a sudden, you hear this knock on the door, and you're like, oh, I was hoping that was a prank call. And you go to the door, and there stands the queen, along with a couple of her bodyguards. And you're like, all right, well, come on in, queen. This is crazy. And you have her sit down. You have them all sit down. You go out to the kitchen to grab the food that you've prepared, and all of a sudden, it hits you. In the midst of all this chaos, you have forgotten to clean the bathroom. Appropriate response. <laughs> it's not good. And so your mind starts to go a million miles a second. You're like, oh, no, this is not good. And you're trying to come up with an excuse so you can distract the queen so you can go, like, tidy things up. And as you turn to, like, say something to distract them, you realize the queen's not there. And you're like, this is not good. <laughs> and so you run down the hall to the bathroom to find the queen on her hands and knees, cleaning up your floor, scrubbing out your toilet, spraying down your mirrors. The awkwardness of that moment maybe gives us a little better sense of this scene with Jesus. 
Because here is mighty God, the one who spoke all of creation into existence with a word, the one who has the angel armies ready at his command, getting down on his hands and knees to wash off the dust and grime and filth of his disciples' feet. And after he does this, the story continues. So read along with me in verse 12. This is what he says to them immediately following. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. (laughs) I can almost assure you at the time they did not. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so Jesus, being God, having all might and power, used it to serve others, ultimately to sacrifice himself on our behalf so that we might have new life and hope in him. And this is the hope that entered the world as a little baby. This is the part of the story that has already taken place. And yet it's not where the story ends. Because one day he's going to come back and will return. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 16 and 17 writes th- says this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And so there's a day coming when Jesus will return. And when he does, it it will be to right all wrongs. It will be to wipe out evil for good. And he's going to draw his followers together to live in community forever in a new heaven and a new earth. That scene is described in Revelations 21, uh, 1, or 21, 3, rather, and it says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his God, or, or his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. What a beautiful thing that is. For the old order of things has passed away. This is the Christian hope for the future. A future that the Bible makes clear could happen at any time. It could be later today. It could be in a thousand years. And for now, we live in the in-between. Between God coming as a little baby and returning to wipe out all evil. And so the question is, how are we to live? In light of the fact that Jesus is mighty God. Well, here's just a couple points that I want to share with you. The first is this, is that knowing that Jesus is mighty God offers us a hopeful confidence in our future. Let me just say that again. Knowing that Jesus is mighty God offers us a hopeful confidence for the future. Now, this one can be difficult, right? This is very countercultural. This is not normal. 
Because there's enough going on in the world that if you spend any time on social media or watching the news, it can just leave us feeling hopeless, right? Regardless of your worldview or your politics or your background or even your personality, there's enough brokenness around us that if we're exposed to it, it can just make us feel like, man, this the whole thing could just like fall apart at any time. But by grounding ourselves in God who is mighty, it reminds us that he is greater than any of those things. He was and is more than just a nice idea, more than a cute story that we tell around this time of year, right? Jesus was mighty God who spoke all of creation into existence with a word. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's the one in whom and by whom all things exist. He knows our every thought, our every action, every hair on our head. In my case, 73. I counted last night. I didn't. And by faith, here's the good news. We know the end of the story, right? We know how things are going to work out, that he's going to return and set things right. And this can give us great comfort, even in the midst of really difficult times. Isaiah 41.10 says this. So do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What an amazing sentiment that is. And therefore, this is the invitation to us, Door Creek, as we can be a people of great hope. And isn't that what the world is so hungry for? Isn't that the kind of people that you want to be around? It's people full of hope. And if this is something that you struggle with, uh, just know that you're not alone. Like, that's a really normal thing to struggle with. And here's, let me just share one idea that I think can help uh, all of us foster and develop this hope and also overcome the fears that we have. Is, is this practice of any time that you feel this ping, this sense of anxiety or fear, whether it's a story you're hearing or something you're watching or an experience you have, whatever it may be, as you feel that first sense of anxiety or fear, that you would get in the practice of just admitting that out loud to God as a form of confession. Just saying, God, I'm, this makes me anxious. This makes me afraid. And here's the cool thing about that. You're not going to surprise God. He's not going to be like, whoa, did not see that one coming. Right? He already knows. He loves you. And he wants to help you find security in him. And as you confess these things, the second part of that same practice is then in that same moment, just to take Get in the practice of reflecting on one time that God has been faithful in your past. Maybe it's something in your story. Maybe it's something found in Scripture. As we become a people who regularly just kind of build into our lives that moment of like, God, I'm afraid, help me overcome, and thank you for being faithful when. And you start to build in this pattern of remembering how God has been faithful. That's what provides evidence that we can believe the promises that have yet to take in place. Right? It gives us evidence that that is going to happen. And as we believe that mighty God exists, it gives us a hope for the future, and it helps us to be a hope-filled people. And how amazing would it be, Door Creek, if one of the first things that people used when they were describing us as a church, when they come maybe for the first time, or they interacted with us or our families or our friends out in the community, one of the first things they used to describe us is like, I don't know if I believe what they believe. That seems weird. I'm not sure about that. But they are so filled with hope. 
Like, I just can't get over that part. They are such a hopeful people. Man, may that be true about us as a church. Now, the second point of application is one that can be immediately tangible, and it's this. As we reflect on how Jesus, having all might, used his power to sacrificially serve others to the point of offering his life on our behalf. It invites us to consider how we use our power, our might, to serve those around us. Do we use it for our own good and benefit, which is like what most people do? Or do we use it to sacrificially serve others? I don't want to be clear on this point because I think this can be easy to miss sometimes. Whether you are here and you're 4 or 94, whether you're married, single, rich, poor, educated or not, whatever your background is, you have might and power. And the question becomes, how are you going to use that? Are you willing to use that to serve the most vulnerable around you? Will you use your voice to advocate for them? Will you use your finances to give to those who have less? And will you serve in a way that you serve without expectation of being served in return? Now, one of my favorite uh, examples of this in our own community here is a woman by the name of Lynn. Uh, many of you know Lynn. Uh, I have permission to tell this story. Um, now, Lynn is a full-time teacher in our, our area. Uh, she's also a wife and a mother. Uh, and she has a passion. If you know Lynn, you know this. She has a passion for using her gifts and talents to serve others and seeing other people do the same thing. And she finds a way somehow. In fact, she doesn't find a way. She makes a way. She makes a way to serve in one of our partner schools that isn't even where she works. Uh, not only that, but she's been a dedicated student ministry volunteer over the years. And she's also one of the key people behind any of the events that we have here as a church where we feed a lot of people, right? Like if we're feeding 500 or more people, which is not uncommon here at Door Creek because this is awesome, Lynn is helping make that happen. So if you see her and you've ever had a good meal around here, you should just give her a hug. Like, she'd appreciate that. I'm not actually sure if she would, but you should do it. Now, one of my favorite things about Lynn is that she will uh, somewhat frequently call me at random times and leave messages with her latest idea, I think it's while she's usually driving, with this latest idea of how we can help our church better engage and serve the most vulnerable in our community and around the world. And when I told Lynn I would share that, she's like, the only thing people are going to remember is that they shouldn't give me her phone number, their phone number. I was like, no, I really, I really love this. This is amazing. Um, and recently, um, their family has gone through some hard times. And... Even in the midst of those hard times, I have witnessed how Lynn has not lost this passion to serve others. And it's grounded in this belief that this is just what Christians do. I love that. And here's the cool thing. She's not alone. Over the last several months, I have had the privilege of seeing teams from this church, from people in this room, serve in places like Rwanda, Haiti, Pine Ridge, New Orleans, I have seen how over just the last few weeks, you all have donated over 2,000 gifts to the Christmas stores that are happening in our three partner schools. And also that you volunteered to fill those schools and staff them so that those kids and their parents might have just a little bit better Christmas. You have given tens of thousands of dollars in just the past few weeks towards our partners nationally and globally that are working day in and day out to serve the most vulnerable. You're serving as tutors, as mentors, you're adopting teachers, you're throwing block parties, and the stories go on and on and on. 
And here's what I want to say to you. Thank you. And also, don't stop. Don't grow tired of doing good. Pray that God would enlarge in your heart in service to others. And continue to think about ways that you can use your gifts, your talents, to serve others. Because we serve a God who, having all power, served us. And this Christmas season, may our hope be found in Jesus, who was and is mighty God. And may that hope give us confidence for the future that is yet to come and a passion to serve others until he returns. Let me pray for us. Father God, we praise you that you are mighty God. And we also confess that that's something we can't even really get our minds around. That if we were exposed to just one millionth of that, we would fall to our knees in awe. So help us to be a people who worship you. And God, help us to follow your lead, to walk in your footsteps, and to use our gifts and talents to serve others because you are a God that had all power and served us. And help us to be hopeful knowing that one day you're going to return and set all things right. And we pray this would be all to your glory and your name.